Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. It was four years ago today. I was just figuring the math out when I was in the hospital with my heart problem. And it was weird because I, I remember I had to call and I, was, I went in on a Sunday and I had to call my guests and cancel them on a Monday. And they're like, oh, what happened? And I said, oh, I'm in the hospital. And they're like, oh, I hope you get better soon. But I got to tell you, it was, it was one of the scariest things that happened to me. But in retrospect, it's one of the best things that happened to me because I changed my lifestyle completely. And, and it's amazing that, you know, I was a smoker. I drank almost every night. And... Uh, I really stopped and I lost weight and I feel good. And uh, so if you have any health issues, check up on them, man. And, and, and if you take medicine, I'm on three medications. If you do that, make sure that you take them and you be a good little camper. And that's about it. Anyway, we have a great show today. Um, my guest, it's so funny. When Sean Ryan was on, the, the creator of The Shield, he talked about his new show, Mad Dogs. So me and Joanne sat down and watched it. And my guest... I'll be honest that like it is one of the I'm not going to give anything away but it is one of the creepiest entrances of a show and he's so damn good in a role and we're going to talk about his great career and my my guest is Mark Pavanelli. Hi do Mark. Hey, I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good. Yeah, it's so funny cuz I saw you on Mad Dogs and we'll get into that but uh man, that role, I'll tell you. We just you were so good in it because you not only got to, you know, be scary and mean, but you got to bring your comedy out. You know, it's uh, it's not that often that I get to play a uh, you know a, a bad guy, a dark character, without it being an obvious joke. And even though, like you said, in Mad Dogs, there's a lot of comedy in it, uh, I, I think that character is written to be legitimately scary. And so it was such a fun departure for me to be able to, you know, try not to make a gag out of it and to try to make it legitimate. And if it turns out to be funny, on top of that, all the better. Now, I got to ask you, you know, you're, you're from Ohio originally, right? Well, I was born in Ohio, and I only lived there for like a year and a half, but I grew up in uh, right side of, outside of D.C. in Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay, now, now, when did you decide you were funny? When did you decide you were acting? And then was it frustrating because, because of your height? You know, I mean, you, there's not a lot of actors that are your size. I mean, how did you start following this uh, process, and, and how did you stay with it at times? Because it must have been frustrating at times. Well, it still is frustrating at times, <laughs> but I think every actor has their own, you know, uh, their own quality that either uh, helps them and also, you know, they feel like can hold them back. And there's no doubt that my size, and for those who don't know me or don't know what we're talking about, I'm three foot nine. So that makes a, that's a pretty significant uh, difference when you're going out for and being in a business where everything is about... So much of everything is about your look. Um, but, you know, Steve, like when I grew up, uh, I, it's weird because I think, um, you know, growing up so physically different from birth, uh, you're sort of always aware of who you are and you're aware of, everybody else is very aware of what you like physically. So you either accept that or you, you know, try to, try to run away from it. And I think I accepted it pretty early on. And that gave me a bit of an advantage in the fact that I'm like, okay, this is who I am. This is the body I'm in, and I'm going to make make the most out of it. Now, now, when did you? At what age did you decide you wanted to act? Because you know, as I always say, you know, I talk to so many different guests that you know they want to do this, they want to do that, and a lot of them always say, and I took an acting class, and there were so many beautiful women, I had to go to acting. 
But when did you decide and what, what made you gravitate towards wanting to act? Was there a certain performance you saw? Were you an avid TV watcher, movie watcher? I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I mean, I think uh, my first time on stage when it really, when I got the bug is my mom dressed me up, uh, God knows why, as Shirley Temple for the second grade talent show and I sang on the Good Ship Lollipop in a dress and a wig and a big old lollipop in my hand and uh, I kind of was hooked after that. It was, uh, it was a revelation to me. I, I, I think that I... Um, you know, it's again like being this size, and and uh, in first grade I had a uh, an emergency spinal fusion. You were talking about your health issues. I had a I was too young to really know what was going on, but I ended up in uh, uh, like a twelve hour surgery, uh, fusing my neck, and uh, in a in a halo cast for six months when I was six years old, and everybody around me, you know, I just was existing. I didn't have any frame of reference to realize that. Not every kid should go through this, and this was a big deal. But everybody around me just so was so uh, inspired, I guess, by my perseverance, and uh, so I became a bit of a celebrity in my my little community, in my school, in my neighborhood, and within my family. Being uh, being a little person, and then having this this quote unquote trauma to go through, and again, like I didn't think much of it, but everybody else sort of said, you know, oh, he, you're so special. And so you come to start thinking that you should do something special with your life and that you're more than just uh, some regular kid, you know, to a benefit and to a fault. And so I think I always dreamed of doing something that would impact people because people told me I was destined to do that. Now, it ends up being acting, and there's a lot of ridiculous, uh, non-inspiring stuff that happens as an actor. Uh, I don't know if that's the most, um, you know, valiant of professions I could have chosen, but I always kind of wanted to be in front of people. I always wanted people to pay attention to me. It was a vanity thing, I think. I think, yeah, I think that is. I mean, it's all a matter of, it's so funny, and as we get older, how we handle, you know, like, different roles and stuff like that. You know, like... uh, like for me, I'm, I'm, I always make, I make a joke that I'm legally blind one eye and I have a lazy eye. And I always sit there and I, I know, the thing is, I'm not, if I go to, I don't submit for auditions for a spokesperson because when you can't look straight in the camera, you can't. I think we have to sit there and you really sit there and go, well, I always say to my friends, I'm bald, I'm cross-eyed, I have a beautiful girlfriend. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And I think that's the sure. thing when people see like, you know, you're shorter, I'm cross-eyed, but we do well, we know people, and that's, I think that inspires a lot of people. I think it does, and it, but the irony in that is that I'm just doing, you know, a lot of it feels so selfish that I'm just, I feel like I'm getting away with something because I'm doing uh, a career that I always kind of wanted to do and knew I wanted to do, and I've existed in it for 20 plus years, and I've been able to, you know, feed a family on it. And I go to work, and I, when I get to work, I have I have so much fun, and I feel like I'm getting away with something in a way. Well, that's that's how you always say that if you love your job, you know, it, it doesn't feel like work. So, right, right, and and most of the time, this does not feel like work. Yeah, yeah, the work is getting the work. Exactly, that's a show. That's as everyone says. That's why it's called show business. You know, once you're there, you're right. fine. But now, okay, so you go from being Shirley Temple in second grade. And, you know, and so then where do you sit there? Where do you start 
what is your career path? Not that a second grader has a career path, but as you get through high school, were you starting to get more involved in theater or what were you doing? Because D.C. is cool, the area, because it's not that far from New York either. Right, but it did feel like a world away. I mean, all of the, the professionalism of the business felt felt like another universe. I mean, I was just doing it. I got in all the plays in high school and I was on the speech and debate team on the speech part of the of the of the team uh, and we did really well we went to the nationals a couple years in a row and and so I was excelling in the arts but it was on a completely uh, minute level and just as something fun to do I mean I I don't come from a family of artists per se and I think it was always and plus being again so profoundly different there weren't a whole lot of role models that I could look up to and say well They've done it. There was Billy Barty, and, and there was Michael Dunn, and Hervé Villachez, and, and David Rappaport, and half of them died an awful early young right. death. Uh, so it wasn't like there was a lot of uh, encouragement to, to take this on. So it was only until I got to college, and I had anticipated that I would go to college and actually be a part of the work on the newspaper and become a journalist or get into advertising or something. But... Uh, the first main stage show came along and there were auditions and I figured it, it was three days in the school and I thought, well, I'll go and I'll audition and that won't work and I will then go on and go on with the rest of my life. And as the story goes, of course, I got cast in that and I never looked back and I just lived in the theater for the rest of my four years at college. So now when you get out of college, you know, you went to University of Miami? Well, I went to Miami of Ohio. Okay, okay. Distinct difference, but yes, uh, uh, Miami of Ohio, which is a, a public institution in Southwest Ohio, so, but a, a good school. Uh, yeah, I, I know the school. I, I, it's funny. Someone else, I, other people have been to, other guests have been to that school. I can't think who, but I know I've had some guests who've been there. But um, so, so, so you you graduate and you you're addicted to acting. You know, you're in all the theater productions, you're ready to go. Now, what is your plan? What is your plan of action? Do you say, I'm going to go to New York? Do you say, I'm going to go to LA? Because once again, I say when you're 22, you know, it's, and you're out of college, you're going to a completely different world. What do you decide to do? And again, I think that I had such a hang up about really taking the leap and feeling like, uh, that this would be insanity to do that. I sort of, inched my way through it. Uh, I knew I didn't want to go to New York or L.A. Specifically, New York just seemed too daunting. And L.A., I just didn't feel like I was good enough yet. And I felt like if I went out to L.A., it would I would end up just doing what I call as dwarf roles, where everything I did was just specifically based on my height and uh, my talent would never shine through. And I would just be costume work and stand-in and uh, and extra and, uh, and all that. And I didn't want to do that. So I ended up going off and going to a regional town. I went to Minneapolis, which is a great theater town. And uh, I, for six years, I made no money, did a ton of theater, uh, started to, to do regional theater around the country, and just built up confidence and some maturity so that finally at age 28, I was ready to move to L.A. and go, okay, I'm going to take my stab at this. And... Uh, see what happens and I'm old enough now to know that if it doesn't work out I can I can go find something else to do it's cool I know Minneapolis is funny Minnesota it's because I've always heard you know it has a great music scene it had a great stand-up scene it had a great improv scene it was a it's a very hip city it's the I mean I don't live there anymore but 
I have nothing but great things to say about Minneapolis. It is the only reason it's not Chicago or New York is because it's so damn miserably cold. Right. And people <laughs> stay away from it, and which is kind of one of the reasons it ends up being such a great town is because it's a smaller town with big ideals and it it does it has an amazing arts community and it's well supported and uh i worked all the time it was fantastic so you decide it's time for me to come to la and uh so you do you pack your car up you move out do you fly out and where do you where do you first live because i always like to find out where people first live when they came to la because it's so spread out and you don't know like when I first moved here, I didn't know where to live, and then I lived in Hollywood, and then now I'm in Burbank, and I've been in Burbank for years. But it's just hard to find a place. When you arrived, what were your thoughts of coming to L.A.? So I knew so little about L.A. My wife, we had been married a year. She uh, grew up in Santa Barbara, so she had a little understanding of L.A. But we packed up the car, put our two cats in the car, and drove out here. And we, my wife had a friend who lived in Pasadena, and all I knew about Pasadena was the Rose Bowl right. and the parade. But we found a little apartment in Pasadena, and it was funny because when my wife had found the apartment, and when we were driving to it, we went through, I, we must have gone up the five or something, and then headed east. But I, I was like, wow, this is so far away from anything, it felt like. It was so far east because, again, coming from the Midwest, everything is so close and you know in Minneapolis you didn't go to St. Paul which was eight miles away because it seemed too far away so coming out here and driving you know 12 miles to get to Pasadena seemed like I was living in another county but I'm still here I've been here 16 years now and I absolutely love Pasadena and now it feels like it's next door to everything because nothing is close to anything out here that's true well actually right Pasadena I mean you're right you jump with the 134 you know it, it's you're getting places. It's not that far from Hollywood. I mean, that's the one thing about the Valley. Everyone says, oh, the Valley. And I guess Burbank and Pasadena really aren't the Valley, but we're close to everything. We are, well, you're close to everything and next to nothing, too. Because if you, I inevitably, inevitably will have an audition in Santa Monica at 5 o'clock on a Thursday <laughs> afternoon. And it's like a, you know, it's like a six-hour event for me to go do that. And I'll, it'll be a commercial audition. I'll walk in and bite and smile and walk out. And it took takes three minutes, but it's two hours getting there and three hours getting back. Isn't that the worst? Or when you have an audition and then you sit there and you, you're coming from Pasadena and I'm coming from Burbank and let's say it's in Culver City. So you sit there and you allow yourself two hours and it's that one day there's no traffic and you get there like in 30 minutes and you're going, I always just go in. I go, you know what? They could take me. But you know, in the beginning, I would sit there, I would sit in my car and you don't know what to do. Your car becomes your little vestibule sanctuary. Uh, you just, I spend so much time, and like you said, like you spend so much time there waiting for stuff in your car too. And try, I, I, I used to have a minivan, and for me a minivan was like a mobile home. I could get up and I could walk around in it. And I would have like little stations inside the minivan that, that I would uh, like sit and relax and watch uh, DVDs and uh, a little snack area. Because it was such a big car, and you, you do, you just spend so much time in it and wait around in that thing. Well, you know what's amazing? And also, as I say this, I, I did a thing on Saturday, some photo thing, and it was in Santa Monica. And what, the one thing I hate about L.A. is, not that I hate, but like everyone knows on weekends, everyone leaves. When there's no traffic, driving in L.A. is great. 
I mean, you're close to everything. And when you sit there, you get spoiled. Like I drove to Santa Monica on Saturday. There was like no one on the 405. And it was the most beautiful thing. But then we go through the stuff when everyone comes back in town. And it's always, you're right, the auditions are always on the other side of town. And what I love about L.A. is uh, what I always missed about the Midwest and the East Coast is that sense of community and that sense of unity. It's really hard to find out here. But traffic will unite everyone. You can spend, like we are, you can spend hours talking about the traffic. It is like it's our sports team. It's our one unifying thing that we all can can relate to and can commiserate upon. So, okay, so you, you arrive, you're in Pasadena, you have the place to live, you feel like you're far away. Now, what's your course of action? Do you first to seek, to seek an uh, agent right away or do you get a part-time job? Or what do you do to start getting in the grind of getting work as an actor? You're already, you're already accomplished as a theater actor, but it's a, it's a crossover. And as everyone knows, you know, I give theater actors all the credit in the world because you guys got to deliver every night. There's no cut, you know, change the camera. It's you got to deliver. If you drop the ball... It affects the whole production. What do you start doing as a theater actor, especially since there wasn't a lot of theater out here? I mean, how do you keep your chops up? What do you, where do you, where do you start from? Well, I was fortunate that I, I, the summer before I moved out here, I, I had been in a play in Oklahoma City, and the guy I was rooming with, one of his, he was from LA, and one of his best friends was an agent. So the day I got out here, I basically had an agent, and that made a huge difference. And I had already gotten into the union, so. I was uh, on my way in terms of two of the big, you know, hurdles you have to go through out here. Uh, and then it was just that slow process of auditioning, and I'd get, uh, I was the new guy, so, you know, you do get a little bit of a break there, and I did have enough of uh, a theater resume that people were willing to, you know, at least meet me, a few anyway. And I I started mostly doing commercials, and uh, I did... Uh, you know, like little bit parts. I think my first actual on-camera job out here was Penn and Teller had some kind of like science show that was, uh, I can't even remember what it was called or anything, but uh, Penn was doing some kind of experiment where you needed to show a, a contrast in size, so they needed a little person and and uh, I did a little improv with him and it felt very far away from doing Shakespeare. <laughs> but it was my first first time on camera and first time getting a paycheck from a job out here. So that was kind of exciting. And then I got a uh, uh, I got a spot on um, Dharma and Greg, and that was the first guest starring spot I had. And that was kind of a real thrill because this was back before the days of the internet and seven thousand channels. Uh, I mean, the internet was around, but not like it is today. And uh, to to be able to call everybody up and have that, that phone chain of, hey, Mark's going to be on TV. Uh, he's going to be on Thursday night at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or whatever time Dharma and Greg was on. And uh, that was a real, th- on a show people knew, was a real thrill. That was that was pretty exciting. Now, what kind of roles were you going out for? I mean, I mean, I know they were to do with your your size, but were they were they roles that you felt were, as you said, you didn't want to move out here in the beginning just to be, have the dwarf role. You didn't want that. Did you feel that these were roles that you were you were going out for auditions of something with it, at least some substance? I'd say that about, I'd say almost half of the, and again, we're talking, we're not talking like I, I went out often. I And even to this day, I mean, the amount I go out for auditions versus the amount of work I get is pretty disproportionate to most actors, I think. 
which is nice because I'm not wasting my time traveling all over town like we were talking about. But it's also frustrating because there's there's just not there's not a whole lot of open mindedness maybe to uh, think outside the box with uh, somebody who is so physically different. And uh, back then, and even to this day, I, I'd say about fifty percent of the auditions that that I see that are specifically for a little person, I turn down before I go in because I'm just it's just clearly not something I want to do. And so the ones I do go in for, generally, I feel there's at least something there. There's a character there. There's a there's a, a depth to it. You know, what's interesting is uh, I never set out to do fantastical characters. That was something in college. Uh, you know, you're so uh, naive about the business and about you're so idealistic. And I said, well, I never want to play an elf or a leprechaun or a goblin or any of these things. And I came out here and I, I, I realized that Ironically, those are the characters, when it's specifically for somebody who's a little person, they're the characters that sometimes have the most depth, because if you're writing a role for a little person, and this is true you know, in the mid-2000s more than it is now, but if it's for a little person and he's a lawyer, well, the whole gag is that he's a little person. And if it's uh, for a little person who's a, an elf, you spend the whole time, the, the writing is written in such a way that they try to humanize the elf and make him as multidimensional and as human as possible to be relatable. So it's actually, ironically, those parts that sometimes are the, have the most depth. The lawyer who's short is just short. It's right. the, the elf who has to have all these other attributes to make them relatable. So, so now when you come out here and you're starting to get Dharma and Greg, now are, are you doing theater too now or, or did you put that on the, on the back shelf when you moved? Well, I did uh, do a couple plays out here. Uh, I did some Shakespeare, and um, I did a couple shows out here. But what happened was in the early... Two, I, I think I moved in the beginning of 2000, and in about 2003, uh, I was approached by a production of Ibsen's A Doll's House that they were doing in New York with a theater company called Mabu Mines, an experimental avant-garde, sort of the fathers of avant-garde theater in the United States. And uh, they were looking for the three men in the show to be little people. And Peter Dinklage was playing the lead, uh, Torvald, and I had, they had given me the role of uh, Dr. Rank, who is his best friend. And we had a, about a six-week run in New York. And about four days before we opened, uh, Peter left because he had shot the station agent. And that was about to become the biggest little indie film of the, you know, of the decade, I think. Right. And so he had to go through all this press for it, and it became a huge hit. And and so they, when he bailed, they asked me to take over the role of Torvald, which is the lead. And so all of a sudden I found myself in New York on stage doing the lead of a classic piece of theater, and it kind of blew my mind. It was a, a really successful show. We ended up touring it all over the world for the next nine years on and off. We went to Moscow and Paris and Edinburgh and Oslo and Bogota and Brisbane, Australia and Madrid. It was insane. What for for a show like that? And you say when you travel, okay, because you're traveling around the world. As an actor, 
because you know places are different. You know, with what material you like, and the crowds are different. You know, like Russia's different. How did you think it translated across the board this play to countries like Russia, like in Moscow, or were people more? You know, you know, you know. How they say everyone's worried in Russia. You know, were people more accepting to theater over there than what we would think as a stereotype of Russians going to a theater? Well, I think on a whole the international market for theater was so much more respe- receptive than the American market. We played in about six different venues in America also, besides New York. We played uh, LA, we played UCLA, we played uh, in Charleston, we played in um, Columbus, Ohio, Chicago, Minneapolis, and there was, you know, there was some, there's just such cynicism about theater here as a general rule. I mean, unless you're going to New York and seeing Hamilton, and in in the rest of the world, uh, theater is government funded, and we were being sent over to play in these festivals that were funded by the government, in theaters that were built by the government and supported by the government, and the audiences uh, ate it up. They loved it, and it was it was kind of uh, it's a real shame to see what's happened with the arts in the in the United States. And I know it's changed since then a little bit around Europe and such with their financial crisis. Uh, I'm sure Athens isn't quite the same as it was uh, funding-wise when we were there, and maybe that's part of their financial issues. But it was uh, it was real eye-opening to get such a, a there just such smart audiences too. It was a very complex show and a lot of interesting themes going on, and and they just ate it up. They loved it. Isn't it crazy? You know, you move out here to to act. And then you end up going back to New York and traveling the world. It seems like that happens a lot. Like people, they'll move out here, and then all of a sudden they get this great opportunity. And it was a it was a godsend for me because I mean it was hard because uh, I had two young kids, and so anytime I left was always tough. But and it wasn't you know when you go and go on location with a movie or a TV show, your pay is a lot better than it is doing theater. But the experiences I had there were amazing, and it just kept me grounded from being out here. Being out here can can wear you down, and it can frustrate you, especially, again, when you're not feeling like you're getting the opportunities that you envision for yourself in terms of, uh, you know, interesting parts. And so then every few months or every half a year to go and play, uh, again, play Torvald in in Madrid was pretty pretty... Uh, nurturing and it kind of got you through the next 10 commercial auditions just fine. Now, how long would you go away for when you did it? Was it, I mean, you know, you said it was on and off for nine years. Would you sit there? Would it be, would you know your schedule like for the year? Like that they say, okay, we're going to go here, here. Or was it something in a matter of a month they would say, oh, by the way, Mark, we're going to, you know, Greece. I mean, how would it work with your scheduling? And did it, did it throw you off in your trying to get your career keep your career maintained out here it was a little challenging i mean i think it was more challenging mentally than it actually turned out to be because i kept thinking i can't leave because what if something happens uh because they would give you about two months notice or so and say uh or two to four months notice and say in september you're going to um you know some some far off country for three weeks and so i kept thinking well you know, I can't audition the week before because I'm not going to be available for those three weeks. And then as soon as you get back, you know, people forget you're in town. So it really was more like five weeks you were out of commission. And uh, I don't think there was, I don't think I ever missed out on anything looking back on it now 
that would have changed anything about my career. I mean, I fretted about it so much, and uh, it's just like the old adage: whenever you want an audition, book a book a vacation because sure enough, you'll get something going on. <laughs> and there's never been a time where I I like decided to not go to that audition and then ended up regretting it. You just move on with your life and you take your life experiences and the work will come if uh, and and one job isn't going to isn't going to change everything. You're here in it for the long long haul hopefully. Now as you toured the world, what would you say was the most beautiful theater? I look I look at some of these theaters in LA like I was in the Orpheum a while ago and you look up and it's just it's so beautiful and it's so just old and just vintage. What would you say was the most beautiful theater when you were trolling the world in a show? Where do you think, where was the most beautiful theater you were in? There were definitely many, but the best was uh, the Theater of Madrid. Uh, it was the State Theater of Madrid. And it was this 900-seat theater. And if you think the Orpheum or the Pantages is pretty, or even like these Fox theaters around the country, there's one in Atlanta and Detroit, and they were built in the 20s, and they're very ornate. Uh, Art Deco, this was... Madrid in the uh, built in the early 1800s, so you can just imagine how grand and ornate and, and beautiful every every bit of that theater was, and it's been kept up beautifully. And it was just stunning. You go out on stage and you just take your breath away a little bit. Now, so you get back here, you're going back and forth. Now, now, what are some of the roles then you're getting? I mean, I look through your IMDb and you've been in a lot of stuff. What are some of the roles you're getting, and are you happy with the roles you're auditioning for? Uh, generally, I mean, I'm happy to keep work. You know, I'm I'm happy to stay in the game. Uh, I hadn't quite gotten that that one thing that sort of felt like I was was moving along, and I was starting to get nervous that I was getting older. And I was doing guest starring spots. I did some stuff on Charmed and Frasier, and like I said, Dharma and Greg, and uh, I can't even remember what else. But I, and I was doing commercials, so I was supporting myself. But it wasn't until Water Ele- Water for Elephants came along that uh, I felt like here was a chance to uh, sort of elevate. The material was excellent. It came from a book that was a national bestseller, and one of the main roles in it was this very well-developed uh, little person. Uh, and I just I fell in love with the character right away, and I, I, I felt like that was going to – that's one of these. They come along once every 10 years, and the one that I had been out prior to that – that felt that way was uh, Bad Santa, like 10 years before, which, you know, I wasn't right for. And, and it had been pretty, other than these guest starring roles and these uh, co-starring things and these commercials, there's nothing of, of that much substance. And so when I got the audition for that, I really sunk my teeth into it. And I went in and I auditioned, and I was incredibly mediocre. <laughs> Now, now, now it's funny because you sit there and you say you sink your teeth into it. So you're probably running lines. You're getting really into it. You're ready. So why? why I hear that too. It's like when you go in, you're ready. Did you just feel that you you sucked, or or what? Or did you just feel you flubbed it, or or why were you off your game? Because you seemed like it was something you were very excited for, and you you you're prepped for it. It's not like you're going in like you looked at the lines the night before. What happened when you went in? Why did you feel that you were mediocre? Well, I think there's a something I've learned and I still, you know, it's a challenge every time, but there's a, there's a trick in auditioning that I had spent so much time, uh, and, and it obviously it had worked out for me enough up until then of trying to figure out what I thought they wanted. 
and go in and try to do what I th- I'd spend all this time thinking, well, this character probably should be older than I am, or this character is, uh, you know, much bigger guy than I am, or this character is that or younger or whatever. And I would try to assimilate myself to whatever I thought they wanted. And I think I did that with Water for Elements audition too. And somewhere along the line, and it was probably at that moment when I left that audition that I realized that I hadn't made the choices that made sense for me and that I hadn't been the actor and, and played the character the way I wanted to play him. Who cares what they think in the sense that I have no control over what they, what they want. I just give them what I want. And if that works for them, fantastic. And then I can walk out of that audition feeling like I gave everything I gave. And if that's not right, then we're not right. It's not a good marriage. And so I walked out of there and I just realized that I played it safe. I I didn't make choices that I thought I should make because I wanted to not mess it up. I was worried about not screwing up the audition as opposed to going for it. And uh, fortunately, I got a call back nonetheless. And uh, and then I, I kind of changed my paradigm and I went in there and I went in for uh, Francis uh, Lawrence, the director and the casting director, and I nailed it. And I knew and when I walked out of there, okay, I did what I wanted to do. And if I don't get this part, it has nothing to do with me. And sure enough, I got a call two days later. And ironically, I got a call, and again, I'm lamenting about my career and how ridiculous it is. And I've had some pretty absurd roles and parts uh, that now are just kind of fun to me. But I was doing a commercial where I was in a full body suit, like a, it was, it was a stunt job, and, and I was in a, uh, they're called Playmobiles, they're like little kids' toys, they're kind of like Legos, but they're, um, it's like a whole set of kids' toys called Playmobiles, and they were making life-size Playmobiles, and I was playing the daughter of all things, so I was fully in this uh, costume where I couldn't move my arms, uh, and, and I had no hands, and I had a big thing around my head, and when I got the call from my agent that I got water for elephants, I needed the customer to hold the phone up to my head to, so I could hear that I had gotten this life-changing role in this you know, dramatic film with a bunch of Oscar winners as I'm doing this ridiculous stunt commercial. That's funny. So now, now how did you get into stunts? Because I know you've done some stunts. What, what, brought you on that, what brought you that road? Well, I just do them enough that I try not to get hurt. I'm no, I, I don't claim myself to be a stuntman, but... There's definitely been stuff that I've been in that, that called for a lot of stunts. And then, you know, sometimes they need a, uh, somebody to, to cover a, a kid and do a stunt for a kid. Or, uh, again, like some of these costume jobs, they, uh, they, they want them to be really physical. At, or the costume weighs 40 pounds and I only weigh 75 pounds. So they end up being stunt jobs. But I'm no, you know, I can't drive a car 120 miles an hour and, and, and crash it into a wall and... I can't fall off a building, and I just do enough that uh, that I um, I try to not get hurt. Uh, but they're they're fun too, you know. It's a little uh, stunt people are insane, and it's a little fun to hang out with them and just go for it and get knocked around a little bit without trying to die. Now I have to ask you because I always ask guests if they've been on the show. You were on Cold Case. I love the show Cold Case. Uh, what was your character on Cold Case, and did you did you get killed or were you a killer? I was uh, I was a uh, an accomplice to a killer. Uh, I played uh, I think his name was Biggie Jones. I was the head of a traveling circus, some podunk traveling circus, and the trapeze artist 
ha- uh, fell from the high wire and some horrible accident, which wasn't really an accident. And it turned out that the like mute uh, stagehand was actually the guy who did it, but I was the one who manipulated him into doing it. So uh, that was a fun role. That was another kind of into the dark realms, but not quite so far as Mad Dogs or uh, a couple of like Criminal Minds, where I was uh, kind of a a bad guy too. See, that's 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 what's great. I just I, something about Colcus because I grew up near Philadelphia. I've always just dug that show, and they used to have it on like Ion on like Fridays, and I would watch like episode after episode, and just because. I don't know. I, I just always thought that show, and I always I have I've had a lot of guests who have been on it, and like I've watched it where like I had Reed Diamond and Robert Romanus were back to back episodes where they were both the killer, and I was like, this is so cool. I'm watching these killers, right? <laughs> and, and you're right. sort of a killer. You're a manipulative killer, so that's great. So I was, but I was even too good to kill. I was yeah. the guy behind the killer. Yeah. So now after after the uh, the water for elephants did. Did people look at your acting chops differently? I mean, did how did it change your? Did it change your career in somewhere where it was a, a movie that had you know Oscar winners and was a critically acclaimed? Did you, did people take you in a different light now? I they did. Yeah, it was it was a a big step up because I think it just had so much exposure, and even if people didn't see it, uh, there was sort of an understanding of. Okay, somebody cast you and saw you in this light. So we suddenly are going to give you that respect. And and I went on a nice little run there with uh, just after, before Water for Elephants came out, uh, Chelsea Handler was making her own foray into uh, network television. She had a sitcom called Are You There, Chelsea, which uh, they were auditioning the pilot for. And uh, I went in to play, uh, audition for a recurring character. This was based on her books, not on her Chelsea Lady right. show, but on her books. And Maura Prepon was playing a younger version of uh, Chelsea Handler, and Chelsea Handler was playing her actual sister, which was part of the reason the show didn't ultimately work, but because uh, it was very confusing. But nonetheless, they uh, had a recurring character, uh, a little person, um, Barback, or Busboy. And so I went and I auditioned for it, and when I went to, after the first audition or second audition, they decided to up the character right then to a series regular. So that was the first time. I I had done a couple pilots before, but it was always for recurring, and none of the pilots had had gone. And so I think, you know, this is maybe the fourth pilot audition I'd even been on in 12 years being out here. And suddenly I was up for a series regular part. And uh, when I went in for the um, studio testing with uh, Warner Brothers, the head of Warner Brothers who was there, his wife was a huge fan of Water for Elephants. And he stopped the room and told all the other executives in there about, he hadn't seen the movie, but uh, how much his wife loved my character. And so that kind of gave you a nice little boost before you start your audition when there's 20 people looking at you all uh, and their boss is telling you how good uh, this guy is. So that was a nice leg up. And I ended up getting that, and it ended up, uh, we shot 13, it went to series, and we shot 13 episodes, and a live studio audience, and it was the perfect marriage of doing theater and doing TV. And I think that's one of the reasons that it worked for me so well, is because it felt very comfortable having a live audience there. No, so, so and then I read, now you, you were the first uh, little person to have a, 
be a regular on a on a network sitcom, I believe. That's right. I mean, and the reason it's so specific is when you think about when you're again when you're so different, and uh, you know, little people have been the butt of a joke and still continue to be that way, even with the 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 gains we've made in respectability. They're the butt of the joke, you know, and and it's still it's such a small community that it's sort of the one one community you can't make fun of most ethnicities anymore and disability is kind of out of favor to make fun of and and mental disabilities as all of that should be but you can still get away with making the dwarf joke and and having the little person run around and bite somebody's ankles or punch him in the nuts or be randy and grab the woman's breasts or whatever stupid stereotype you want to fulfill and so it was very daunting for me to go into a you know this is a huge opportunity to me for me but then again i'm i'm on a sitcom and the person in charge of the sitcom is chelsea handler who on her regular show has a little person as you know a sidekick and kind of a prop uh on her uh, chelsea lately show so i made a lot of uh phone calls and and sort of not demands but i i, I insisted on with the producers that if I was going to do this, that, you know, we're, we had to not go there and not make the, make it an, an embarrassment. I just, it was, it would have been heartbreaking. And to their credit, we never, I ne- never had to do anything I didn't feel comfortable with. And I never, I was never, that's what made it so interesting and why it's uh, surprising to have a, I mean, if you have a little person on a sitcom, it seems like that's going to be your first go-to joke. And that's the only joke, but not that my size was ignored, because it's not ignored in my regular life. I, I talk about it. It's part of me. I, I'm very comfortable with it. But I'm not going to make it the only aspect of my character. And, and to their credit, we, we stayed above that to a large degree. And, and it's a trashy show, you know. I mean, it's full of sex and booze and drugs and, and silliness. And, and we stayed out of the gutter when it came to disability. Now, now when you got that role... Did people, other uh, little people, sit there and contact you? Because it is something that, it's it's a milestone, someone. When you think about it, you know, we think about different things, but you're a first. Where did you become, do you feel like somewhat of a role model? And now because there's social media, it's so much easier to get in touch with you. Did you have people reach out to you, any young people or whatever, just said, hey, this is awesome, or I want to be an actor? Did you feel you inspired anybody? Well, I hope so. And I hope that, you know, some of my other work did. Uh, the community is really good. The little people community, like when we would do a uh, dollhouse in Chicago or in Washington, DC, people would come out or New York and come out to see it and really support it. And certainly Chelsea was such a, a, a huge exposure, but again, I think everyone was so nervous about it being, this is Chelsea Handler and this is, are you just going to be another Chewy? And, uh, so there was definitely a bit of a trepidation about that. And, uh, I think that that uh, just people get so nervous around little people in comedy if you're a little person because you just assume it's going to turn out bad for the little person. And uh, so I, I don't know that I, – I think there's a sigh of relief almost maybe when, when – uh, it's funny. In, the, in a community like this, sometimes you'd almost rather have no exposure than, than, than the exposure that possibly could turn out negative. And while I, I am resolute in thinking that this was not negative – there was such a fear about, is this going to be negative? And here's a sitcom, here's a thing of all jokes, and here's Chelsea Handler. This is going to turn out really bad. 
And it didn't, and it's too bad that the show didn't go beyond one season because I think that that character was ready to really embark on a lot of uh, multidimensional storylines that would have been a lot of fun to do. Well, how, how does it feel for you? I mean, it must be frustrating. As I said, you finally, you get this role. You know, you, you've been busting your ass, you know, you and you get this role, and then the show gets canceled. Were you upset or you just said, hey, man, that's part of the biz? Well, I certainly knew it was part of the biz, and I knew that the show wasn't, it, it didn't come as a surprise. I knew that the show wasn't quite resonating, and it, and it had some issues. Uh, but it was interesting because a lot of the cast, uh, I was one of the older people in the cast, even though I played the same age. Uh, or close to the same age, and they all work all the time, and to them, they were just saying, oh, well, this is my third series that's been canceled, I'll get, the next one hopefully will be better, and I was sitting there going, wow, <laughs> these chances don't come along very often, this 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 kind of stinks, and uh, I just hope this, this happens for me again at some point, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I haven't been on a, a regular on a series, per se, but I've still worked and, and I'm still plugging along and and it's it's not for uh, it, again it it's one of those things that it doesn't necessarily translate into suddenly everybody's gonna be uh, auditioning you for every role out there whether they're a little person or not people still get in their heads well he's uh, if I have a role for a little person I'm calling Mark if, if especially if Peter Dinklage isn't available and I'm calling Mark and while that's great. Uh, it'd be nice to be able to go out for the third, third computer guy in the lab at CSI, or right. the you know the again like the the waiter at the at the restaurants at uh, that the Big Bang Theory goes to those kind of uh, parts. That it's crazy because in real life there's little people filling those positions all over the place: the doctors and the lawyers and the waiters and the CPAs and all that. But on television, you just don't see that. So now, now after after that show, you know, you said you ended up in Criminal Minds. Was it good for you to go back to a drama, even though you did comedy? It was. I mean, I I I'm I love doing comedy. I, I find it such a challenge, and I love dissecting why something's funny and what what cadence works and all those little nuances that make something funny or not funny. And drama just feels like a a, a nice reprieve from that, where you don't you can you, you don't have to be so technical. Comedy is so. People forget how technical comedy is, and drama feels, uh, in a way, much looser uh, to me. And so it was, uh, it was a nice departure to go and do uh, drama. I do one fortunate thing about my career is, even though I'm typecast by my size, the diversity of roles I've gotten have been so vast. And I don't play, you know, I don't play the the lawyer in every episode of every TV show. I get to do oh, so many different things, and that. That's been a real benefit of, of being so different. Now, Mad Dogs, as I said, and it's great because your role is the cat. And, and, and if people watch the show, if you have Amazon Prime, because when they say the cat, you know exactly. As I said, that opening was, it's just one of the, it's just a creepy ass scene. I mean, when you watch it, it's like, it, it makes you want to watch that show so much more. How did that role come up? And were, did you know of Sean Ryan's work in The Shield? And did you know you were auditioning for? And did you know it would be a good-sized role? Well, I don't know if I didn't pay attention or what, but I didn't realize that Sean Ryan was a part of Mad Dogs at the time. Uh, what I knew was that it was going to be an Amazon pilot, and this was in just in the you know fledgling... I mean, Amazon's still fledgling a little bit, but they're obviously doing quite well. But 
they hadn't, I mean, they had the Alphas, the John Goodman show on, and that was, you know, one of the few bright spots for them. Transparent hadn't even hit yet, necessarily, and or maybe it was just coming out. Uh, so I went in to read for Chris Cole and uh, Charles McDougall, who was the director, and Chris was the creator of the British series, which what this was based off of. And the role just seemed so interesting to me, and... Uh, I think I had only gotten, you know, they didn't give you the whole script. They just gave me my character. I knew the premise, but uh, I just felt like this is one of these parts that that has so much potential to be different and interesting. And it's not a gag, even though it's shocking and it's bizarre and it's definitely fun to have him be a little person. It wasn't. A, it's not a total gag. It's the guy's very serious and he's very good at what he does, which is basically a hitman. And uh, so I just I just indulged in it. And, it, and it takes place in Belize, and the character was supposed to have a Belizean accent, Creole accent, which I had no idea what that was. So diving into that was a, a real. It just it just made sense to me right off the bat that part. And I um, I really uh, had a great time at the audition, and I I I really uh, I felt good walking out of there again. And and sure enough, I got it. And then when we got down to um, Puerto Rico, where we shot it, it's one of these all-night shoots, and you just, it, it seems so surreal, because the scene is so surreal, that where I enter, uh, it just, it felt like doing this, like, late-night, bizarro, cabaret theater, almost, because it, you're at four o'clock in the morning in, in this mansion in, in Puerto Rico on the beach, wearing a cat mask and <laughs> doing horrible things, it just seems so bizarre. And that's pretty much what comes across on the screen. Well, you know, it's it's the the thing about it is also is when I watched it, you know, that role didn't have to be played by a little person. I didn't think I I don't think that made it more impactful. I think some of the the fight scenes made it different, but I think that was a role where I think they could have gone either way in the casting. I think so too, and I, I thank you for saying that. And I think that there's so many roles like that that. You don't need a little person, but once you put me in it, it becomes that much more interesting. It doesn't mean that the show has to be, or, or my character has to be about my size, but just the mere fact that I'm in it suddenly gives it a different perspective. And this show is certainly the case. When it doesn't matter if the guy's six feet tall or four feet tall, if he has a gun in your face, it's scary. And you react differently than if he doesn't have a gun. The, the defining thing is the gun, not the, not the size of the guy. And my character never, you know, at least uh, for most of it, never ends up allowing anybody to uh, get the best of him because he's smart enough to know that he's four feet tall and that he's going to make it. He's going to make uh, decisions based on that that won't allow somebody to to overpower him. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think the that there it, you don't have to as a writer you don't have to be writing monologues about what it's like to be a little person. You just have a little person in the role and it becomes interesting. And just that cat mask. That, that's what just makes, I mean, it sounds so, such a small detail, but that just changed. Like if you had just walked in, you would have been, you would have been just a hitman. But something about that damn cat mask just f- freaks you the f-, f out, man. Cause it's just, you watch, you're going, okay, I'm creeped. I'm creeped out. And it's not because of the size. It's because, as you said, there's a guy with a cat mask holding a really nice gun. And uh, that the, for the pilot, when we shot that scene that you're talking about, 
they was you know it's a pilot so we're short on time and they hadn't had a costume fitting that mask did not fit my head at all about three quarters of that scene i can't see anything because it's turned to the side or pushed down on my face or pushed up and i'm just looking at the front of the mask and so i'm walking around completely can't see anything it seemed so ludicrous uh and so non-scary doing it uh i'm really happy that it comes off effectively afterwards now, how fun was it doing the big fight scene with those guys? I mean, because it, it seems it's like you're kicking their asses and they're getting you and they're mess, you're they're roughing you up. How fun is that? Because I know it's taken as serious, but it also has a little bit of because that's the thing. Mad Dogs had a little bit of humor in it. I mean, that's just some of the things. I mean, and every the whole cast was great. But how fun is it doing a scene like that? And then when they're grabbing you and throwing you in a well, I mean, that just might just be as an actor. It just must be just must be fun. Well, especially with those four guys. I mean, we're talking to Ben Chaplin and Michael Imperioli and Romney Malco and Steve Zahn. I mean, they're just, we just had such a great time hanging out together. They're such cool dudes. And, and then to be doing this scene that we are just beating the hell out of each other was, it was hilarious. It was great. And, it, you know, the thing is, is it was that scene that takes four minutes. You shoot for 12 hours and it's 90 degrees and you're outside. You know, there was no air conditioning in the, in the mansion and so it's, you're just dying. You're just sweat. I mean, it felt like you had just played uh, a 12 hours of tackle football after that. I'm like, me versus four hundred, two hundred pound guys was insane. But uh, yeah, we just had a riot. We were just cracking up the whole time and exhausted. And uh, it's, it's always fun to kind of let loose and, and just go for it. And that scene was totally uh, one of those scenes after the technical stuff's worked out. You just kind of let loose and just go for it. And there were a lot of bruises and a lot of pain. <laughs> so, okay, so after that show wraps. Now, now, what? where are we going now? What, what, what are you up to? I know, did you have a play or something recently? Or I know I talked to you in the emails. We couldn't lock down a date. Did Were you performing or? I was. I did. A, I went back to theater. I did a, a festival of uh, science fiction theater, which basically does not exist. It's a uh, an art form that, you know, there's science fiction books and comic books and movies and tv shows but there's not a lot of science fiction theater and it's a festival that a, a, a brilliant actor named david dean Battrell uh kind of grew out of his own mind about three years ago and this is the third year that we've done the festival and i did it last year and i did it this year and uh did this hilarious piece which is basically a a sitcom about the devil and uh it just it it crushed and it it was so much fun to do and and it was great to get back to theater and to get back to just straight up comedy. And uh, again, that technical stuff of finding out what's funny. And Jack Kenny adapted a Clive Barker piece. And Jack Kenny's done a million, uh, in, been in a million writers' rooms and a showrunner for a ton of shows and just wrote this really, really funny, tight script. So it, it felt great to get back and do theater again. It was such a, a, a satisfying, uh, fun time. Now, do you have plans to do some more theater now, or is it something that has sparked your little uh, your interest back there? Are you like, okay, you know, this is this is what I like. Well, I do like it, but it's that kind of show is perfect because it satisfies that sort of craving, and I don't need to go. I, it's funny because I do so much theater, but I do get bored. <laughs> you know, once you kind of accomplish it, it's uh, the the hard work in theater comes from slogging in there the fourth week of a run and on a Wednesday night and doing the show at, for a half full audience. And, and that's where the real challenge of the show is to keep that fresh. So, uh, 
now that this show's done, I mean, I, I sort of had my fill. My cup is full, and I'm I'm happy to to take a break from theater, even though I love it so much. We have a few minutes left. What else is coming up for you? Well, I'm doing a uh, film in Utah called, called Ledge Dweller in August, and uh, there's some other things in the works. Uh, uh, but you know, you, you always kind of you, you kind of let all these irons in the fire. A couple of uh, scripts that have been are out there being shopped around, and you know, if one of them happens, it'll be another kind of uh, Chelsea. Are you there, Chelsea, or Water for Elephants, or Mira Mira? Some kind of big thing that would be a really nice uh, feather in the cap, or they don't happen. Now, now, and, what's uh, what's your role in Utah in that movie? Uh, I play. Uh, it's fun because I play. Uh, it's a, about a woman who has a kind of a midlife crisis. And I end up uh, being her love interest at the end of the film. I'm a doctor, and she kind of uh, suddenly becomes aware that there's uh, there's other people. She's been chasing around these dirtbag men, and and now you know there's this good guy dressed in a package that isn't typically what you think of as a leading man, and uh, yet I'm kind of the I'm kind of the romantic lead for her at the end of the film. That must and, be. Uh, yeah, so it's it's nice. I mean, there should be more of those kind of roles out there. And now, do you you also you said the, the scripts. Did you write them? Uh, yeah, I wrote one, and uh, another one uh, I want to do is a a travel show where me and a buddy uh, who's a comedian, a little person, and we would travel the world. Uh, he was in Dollhouse with me, so we've already traveled the world together. But we'd go back and travel the world and. Uh, kind of figure out, like, do the whole Anthony Bourdain thing of, you know, checking out the culture, but do it through the eyes of a little person who lives there. So go to go to Cairo and meet a little person that lives in Egypt and find out what life is like for a little person in that part of the world and what, what it's like for the disability community in that part of the world. Because we got it pretty easy here in the United States. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing because you've traveled, I'm guessing you've seen a lot. I mean, I just said, we have, you know, as much as we complain, we have pretty much... Everything's pretty easy in the United States. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, we of course on Facebook and all that stuff. People bitch about this and that, but as I say, you know what? We have it pretty damn good. And you know, I, it does take traveling to other places to realize that, yeah, we there's plenty of flaws in the United States, and I could go on and on about them. But it takes going away and seeing other places to realize how good it is, and especially somebody uh, with a disability or somebody different. Um, you know, we really. We, we're pretty fortunate uh, to, to live in this country where there's, uh, for all of the, you know, struggles and close-mindedness that there is in this country, compared to a lot of other places, it's a, it's a world of difference. Okay. Hey, well, you know what? I, I want to thank you for coming on, man. This was good. I'm glad we got to do this. I had a great time, Steve. Now, thank now, you. I now, your now, show. Now, Twitter and all that, give, give, give that stuff. Uh, yes. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, Mark Povinelli. P-O-V-I-N-E-L-L-I, Instagram, all those things. I should be more active on social media, and uh, maybe after your, your show, I will be. Exactly. Well, people, check him out. Also, check me I'm at Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot of funny stuff. I do, I do tweets just for mostly jokes. Uh, Facebook, I have a new page, Cooper Talk Radio. Uh, you can check that out, or just look me up, Steve Cooper. Uh, my website is coopertalk.net. I have uh, 515 episodes up there, which you can also contact me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. I will get back to you. Tell me what guests you want to hear. I'll try to get them. Um, Instagram, coopertalk1. 
I put up some food things. I put up memes about my show. That's more of a, just a fun site. And if you want to play Words with Friends, I'm Cooper Talk one I love playing people. I have like 12 games going on. It just it makes me sane. And also, I talked about my health problem. Don't forget my other website, StopTheSalt.com. It's uh, the low-sodium cookbook. Uh, low-sodium cookbook for one. It's a $9.95. You can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or go to my site and get it from me and I make more money and I will sign it and I'll mail it to you. So that's about it. So follow Mark. Check out his work. Go to IMDb. Follow him. Uh, and as I said, Cooper, uh, at Cooper Talk on Twitter. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, Take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.